So I'm David Hinton, <coughs> Dean of the uh, Harvard Divinity School. So welcome to this, our keynote session of the Religions and the Practice of Peace Colloquium. Uh, in celebration of the Divinity School's bicentennial year, this is our 200th birthday. As we look ahead to the Divinity School's contributions to Harvard University and the wider world in its third century, we've chosen as our theme for the RPP Colloquium series this year, envisioning strategies for sustainable peace, exploring religious contributions. So since an ongoing interest of ours is the vital role that women can play in peace building in the 21st century. We're especially honored and delighted to have uh, Lema Bowie with us as our keynote bicentennial speaker. So thank you for coming, we're delighted to have you. In view of her deep experience and impressive achievements in this arena, we're very grateful to have her with us and to share her insights on the topic, Women as Catalysts for Local and Global Spiritually Engaged Movements for Sustainable Peace. Yesterday, we had the great fortune of having uh, Ms. Bowie join us for the RPP Working Group's annual lunch roundtable. And she led a workshop for the students from across Harvard taking part in RPP's courses. Ms. Bowie, on behalf of Harvard Divinity School and the Religions and the Practice of Peace Initiative, many thanks for being here, sharing your wisdom with our students, and spending all day with us, as well as today. In the prologue to, uh, of her memoir, Mighty Be Our Powers, How Sisterhood, Prayer, and Sex Changed the Nation at War, she writes, quote, this story, the story she was telling, is about an army of women in white standing up when no one else would, unafraid because the worst things imaginable had already happened to us. It's about how we found the moral clarity perseverance and bravery to raise our voices against war and restore sanity to our land. You have not heard this story before because it's an African woman's story and our stories are rarely told. So it's a powerful read if you get a chance to read this memoir. Uh, and thank you for telling your story and for honoring us with your presence. I'd also like to express our gratitude to Professor Anne Browdy, who will be our moderator this evening, and the director um, of the Women's Studies and Religion program. We're very grateful to that program, which is uh, co-sponsoring tonight's event. Um, we're very grateful to the Provostial Fund at Harvard for the Arts and Humanities for its support of our keynote events uh, over these two days, to the El Hebri Foundation for its generous support of this year's RPP colloquium series, to Karen Vickers-Budney and uh, Al Budney right here for their generous support of the RPP initiative, and to the RPP team and Divinity School staff for organizing uh, tonight's session. For those of you who may be attending our RPP colloquium for the first time, these sessions convene an RPP working group of faculty, fellows, alumni, and graduate students from across Harvard University and the greater Boston area. The sessions double as a class meeting for the graduate students who are enrolled in the colloquium as a course, so there's students taking this as a course. After Ms. Bowie's presentation, we'll have a brief period of conversation between her and the working group uh, launched by the graduate students themselves before the Q&A is opened up to the entire audience, so there will be a, a two-stage to the conversation. So now I'd like to invite our moderator, uh, Professor Browdy, director of the Women's Studies and Religion Program. 
senior lecturer on American religious history, to say a few words and to introduce our special guest. And thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, David, and thank you for making the religions and the practices of peace such a fruitful partner for the Women's Studies in Religion program. As we see the extent of overlap between these two initiatives, it has highlighted for me how important women's practices are to the deep work of peace, the continuing work that must come both before and after the treaty is signed, that must be sustained in daily contacts and cultures transformed. I'm delighted to be collaborating on this event and look forward to many more. It's a great pleasure tonight to welcome to Harvard Divinity School someone whose work exemplifies the need for women's voices and women's actions in illuminating the intersections of religions and peace. Today's speaker, Nobel Laureate, Lema Bowie. Now, Lema may not know it, but we have been waiting for her arrival on our campus for a long time. <laughs> um, Although I would love to trace the roots of today's event back 200 years um, in observance of our bicentennial, I will make do with 25, uh, going back to the early 1990s. It was then that the school decided that the study of gender was so fundamental to the study of religion and the need for new research in this area so acute that we should make it a permanent part of the school. One of the first people to understand and support what we were doing was Abigail Disney, who would go on to produce the film, of which we will see a clip in a few minutes, Pray the Devil Back to Hell, the film that introduced the work of Lema Bowie to American audiences. Now, Abby Disney understood in the 90s that how religions are interpreted is critical to issues affecting women and girls and the health of our societies. Then she went to Liberia with Swanee Hunt and she started talking about a movement there she had to know more about. And then about a woman that we really needed to know more about and that of course was today's speaker. Uh, then we all saw the film, and then we started to hear about the film from students who saw the film and then decided to come to Divinity School. Um, so after so many years, we are delighted that Lema Bowie is now with us in the flesh. Um, we know her best for her role as leader of the nonviolent movement that united Christian and Muslim women to help bring the end of Liberia's devastating civil war in 2003. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 for that work, um, which she has chronicled in her eloquent memoir, Mighty Be Our Powers. Since then, she has extended her work as a peace advocate beyond Liberia, helping to found and direct several initiatives for women and peace building in both the region of West Africa and throughout the continent, including the Bowie Peace Foundation Africa, which she serves as founder and president. She is currently a distinguished activist in residence at Union Theological Seminary. Um, before she speaks to us, if you will indulge us, we're going to show the trailer of Pray the Devil Back to uh, Hell, and then um, Ms. Bowie will address us. 
money, greed, ethnicity, absolute power. There is nothing that should make people do what they did to the children of Liberia. The warlords gave these boys guns and sent them off. They just do anything because they had guns. You go to bed saying, God, please. What do we do? I had a dream, and it was like a crazy dream. We decided to protest. We wore the white, singing to people we were out for peace. Thousands of women, Muslim and Christian, were coming together, calling for peace. These women had seen the worst, but they still had that vibrance for life. And we said, well, if I should get killed, just remember me that I was fighting for peace. We stepped out first and did the unimaginable. To send out a signal to the world that we, the Liberian women, we are tired of the killing of our people. We can do it again if we want to. I want to hear now, gratefully acknowledge the powerful voice of women. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, it's truly an honor to be here today. Um, this is the last leg of almost a month um, of work in the U.S. Um, from Quinnipiac University to the U.N. General Assembly to Birmingham, Alabama, to the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and now to here. I leave 5 a.m. and get on a 5 p.m. flight to Monrovia for a few days and then back to New York and then to Israel. So it's, <laughs> it's a whirlwind of travels, but it's a rewarding thing. I'm, I'm humbled, Dean Hampton. Thank you. Thank you to Liz and her team. Thank you for all those who made this possible. I know it's been a long time coming. Um, this visit should have been with my friend Asatu, um, the leader of the Muslim Women, but she's now the deputy um, director of the immigration service in Liberia. And we're at a very critical place where the UN is pulling out their troops and everyone, especially in the security sector, I needed, in, especially her. So she couldn't make it. But I'm just really humbled to be here. Yesterday was a long but very rewarding day one of the things I often say to people is that all of these exchanges not only help to strengthen and inspire me, but it's a learning, it's a learning experience for myself. I leave really feel through the exchanges of ideas and knowledge with the different groups of people that I engage with. So this evening I'm going to endeavor to talk to you about women using the examples of the Liberian women as catalysts for peace. And I'll start with something from 101 years ago. 
We, the international women assembled here, protest against the madness and horrors of war, involving as it does a reckless sacrifice of human life and the destruction of so much that humanity has labored through centuries to build. This International Congress of Women opposes the assumption that women can be protected under the conditions of modern warfare. We protest vehemently against the odious wrong of which women are the victims in the times of war, and especially against the violation of women which attends all war. We express sympathy to the suffering of all, whatever their nationality, who are fighting for their country or laboring under the burden of war." Unquote. These words were the sentiments expressed 101 years ago by the women who gathered at The Hague. This was the end resolution after their Congress. You look at our world today, it is belabored with similar or even worse atrocities. Activism has increased. The political dynamics have somewhat shifted, and militarism and war economies has increased, while peace seems elusive. In Africa today, there are 29 countries currently in conflict with 214 militia groups or insurgent groups. In Asia, 16 countries, 167 militia or insurgent groups. In Europe, there are 10 countries with 80 groups, militia, insurgent, or terrorist groups. In the Middle East, seven countries only, but they have the highest number of military and insurgent groups, 241. In the Americas, 26 drug cartel organization and terrorist group operating in six countries. In total, globally, there are 67 countries involved in war of some kind, and with 729 groups, insurgents, militia group. If you go to this website, over and over wars of the world, you will see that every day the number of militia groups and insurgent groups increases. A few months ago, South Sudan had little less than 23. Today is between 26 and 29. Every day, the number of people causing crisis and chaos in our world is increasing. And if you look at the images from all of these conflicts that I've talked about, it shows that women and children bear the greatest brunt. Reports from recent fighting in South Sudan, and I'm sure many of you haven't heard, but in July, when the peace process was really progressing, everyone thought that life was going to be better because the Vice President Riyak Mashek had gone back to South Sudan, the country went relapse in July. One of the things that people do not know is that no one was spared from the madness. The night of the attack on the city, the, 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 the foreign policy report that the deputy US ambassador was coming from a reception and soldiers from the presidential palace opened fire on his convoy. Fortunately, he was driving in a bulletproof van, and many of the Marines that were with him returned fire, and he escaped unharmed. But that was not the situation. For women who were working with eight organizations living in a hotel, they tell, today they tell um, commissions of inquiries 
that as many as 15, in some instances, soldiers raped one person. People who had gone to provide protection. So in July, everything broke down in South Sudan. Rape and assault was the biggest weapon that was used. What is sad as we think about these things, though, is that extremism and war is becoming a global trend. This is the only way people tend to, violence is the only means of expressing their dissatisfaction about other things. I was sitting somewhere a few weeks ago and people were talking about the US elections and if this doesn't go the way it goes, we foresee violence and violent protests in different places. And in my head, I'm asking myself, is this the only way we can solve some of the differences that we have by expressing hate and anger and hurting the other? In my home country, Liberia, the situation was no different several years ago. We went to war between 1989 and 2003. Reports from different organizations, the statistics are not really right. People are still trying to, so we put it to about 60% of the population of Liberian women were raped during the war, 60%. It was a difficult period for us. Many initiatives came about. Groups of women all over tried. They worked at local level in different ways to bring an end to the civil war. However, the processes, like many other processes, were disconnected, perpetuated the divisions that separated the country, and at the end of the day, nothing happened. This war lasted for 13 years, and for the last 13 years of the war, so I was 17 when the war started, and so 13 years later, I'm 30. And as I'm in my 30s and looking at the war, I've read King, I've read Gandhi. I know about nonviolent activism. And I will see activists who were eloquent and could really express themselves. And I will look at them like, oh, this should be our Gandhi. Who's going to be our Mandela? Always looking at different individuals and in my head trying to rationalize that the eloquence and the intellectual ability that these people had qualified them for the work of being the activists that would save the country. I knew that the war would come to an end only if people used nonviolence means. Because when the war started, like many of the conflict that I mentioned in different countries, it was just the government and the insurgent. But over time, people begin to take up arms. The more atrocities that are, the more atrocities committed, the more arms come into the country. If you look at Syria a few years ago, it was just the government and the protesters. Today, over 28 insurgent and militia groups operating within Syria. So every time one community is hit, people arm themselves as a means of fighting back. So at 30, I'm looking at my country and telling myself, we will never get to peace as long as we continue to use violence as a means of solving the problem. So as I carry this thought for so long, one of the days I had this strange dream. My kids had moved out of Liberia. I'm in, in Monrovia doing trauma work, doing different things, working with the church. And I was so depressed because these, I, had, I started having my children at 21, and they were my world. So I, I'm like really frustrated. I 
put myself in my work. I did not own a laptop or anything. So I used to write. I used to write everything down. I still do. And so one of the nights I had written, I'm lying on the floor and I fall asleep. This cold wind hits me and I'm between sleep and wake and it's like someone is telling me, wake up and gather the women to pray for peace. So after I woke up, it seemed so unreal. I was looking around. I lived alone in this house. In the morning, I went to work, and my boss was a pastor. So I went to him and said, Reverend, I had a strange dream last night. He said, come and sit and talk to me about it. I said, in my dream, I heard this voice telling me, Lima, wake up and gather the women together to pray for peace. And then I said, so I'm telling you, because as a pastor, you need to go and tell the women in the churches to pray. And he looked at me and smiled. He said, Lima, the dream bearer is always the dream carrier. You have to do this. And then I tried to rationalize with him. I said, Revy, have you seen my social life? I drink like fish. I have an alcohol problem. I'm in a relationship with a man that I'm not married to. According to biblical standards, I'm a fornicator. <laughs> Remy, have you seen that I have children with a man that I did not marry, and so I'm an adulterous woman? Remy, I am, and he's just looking at me. He said, you know what? If you don't bear this dream, the next time you see it, you will not recognize it. That's why it's important for a dream bearer to always be the dream carrier. So I will invite the women from the church to come, but I will insist that you sit with them and drive your dream. So we started something called the Christian Women Peace Initiative with just women from the Lutheran Church, which was my religion, religious background. After our first meeting was basically just prayers, all day prayers and prayers and beseeching God I never tried to rationalize in my head what was happening because I felt like if this was the message, I shouldn't move beyond it. And after the first week, then someone said, for this to be effective, we need to invite women of other churches. So we sent out the word, and the women of other churches came, and it was just prayer and prayer. And then one day, a delegation from the World Council of Churches came to Liberia. So we went to the church and they asked us to present a statement. And we presented the statement that we're tired of war and that we're going to continue to seek the face of God, but that we were challenging our religious leaders because every warlord was affiliated with every faith background. So you had those who went to the mocks and Taylor went to church. And so we're challenging them to use the pulpit. So in my head, I'm still thinking some of these great men are the Gandhis and the Mandelas of our time. So you need to use your pulpit as a place for advocating for peace and calling your members to order. And then as these women came, 
we got more older women, but at that World Council of Churches program, Asatu stood up and said, I'm challenged by the Christian women using their faith as a means of ending the war. I'm going back to my Muslim sisters and we will start the Muslim women for peace. So once they, start, they came together, they sent for me and said, can you guide us? Can you mentor us? Can you do what you did with the women of the church? And basically it was just finding time. So for them, since they do not operate in a space like in the church setting, they will go to prayers on Friday. And after Friday prayers, they will stay back in a special room, either in a mosque or in a nearby school, where they spend time praying and talking about how to strategically engage. They took the first step of inviting an imam to their meeting and say, we're calling you to say, this is what we know that in our faith tradition, people always say women are not supposed to do this. And he, an Islamic scholar said, people speak out of ignorance, but there is nowhere in the Quran that is written that women should not do any work for peace. As a matter of fact, that is the contrary. So his statement just empowered those women. And that one imam be, became the person who would journey with those Muslim women even as we begin to do our work. The core purpose of this work was basically bringing Christian and Muslim women together to pray for peace, to use our spirituality. Eventually, we decided beyond our individual groups, we're going to forge an alliance. Many of us recognized that there had been other groups that had worked separately and they had not succeeded in doing anything. And the one question that we asked each other, how can we extinguish a blazing fire with drops of water? Because if you have separate work for peace building, that's what you're doing, trying to extinguish a blazing fire with drops of water. So we formed the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace, which was like a consortium of Christian and Muslim women coming together to do things. This marriage of Christian and Muslim women was not easy. It was challenging. People brought different faith, uh, um, um, spiritual things. Instead of using it to build a group up, they brought it to break the group apart. Many of the Christian women specifically will come and say, what fellowship does darkness have with light? Those are the kinds of scriptural references. So it got very intense to the point that we had to say to some of the women, if you're not satisfied with working together, leave. If we're five consistently doing this work, we are sure that we'll get um, some, we'll succeed in doing so. Not only that, our President Taylor had taken a second wife and she was a Muslim. So she went on the radio, once they knew that this work was gaining traction, she went on the radio calling on the imams in the country to advise Muslim women not to go to protest because it was not their place spiritually to protest for peace. And, and, and some pastors were from within his, his network were also saying the same things. So the Archbishop of the Catholic Church and this Islamic scholar came together one day, went to where we protested, brought a whole bunch of media people with them and said, the Archbishop said, if you're a true Christian and you fail to join this group, you are not exercising what Christianity is because Christianity is a religion of peace. And this Imam put the challenge out there 
that every God-loving Muslim woman would come and join us. The next day, our number tripled. All we needed was these religious leaders coming out to say, this is it. And once these women came, we continued to do our work. So while we did the, the, the daily things of being strategic, having meetings and sitting and talking about where we would target next for our picketing, where we would target next for all of the different things that we did, we never abandoned the spiritual part. And when I was being interviewed before I came here, someone asked me, what were some of the spiritual rituals that you all did? And I said, you know what? In all of the years that I did this work, this is the first time anyone had asked me about the spiritual ritual. This is not something that I saw. I, I, I said to him, I'm honestly shocked that you asked this question. Because while we, the first thing we did every morning at 6 a.m., the earlier group that gathered on that airfield started a time of praise and prayer. So we would sing Christian songs, pray, and then the Muslims would pray. So it was like a, a collective time of prayer. It wasn't like we separated anything. Sometimes we had vigils. I remember there was this one night we had a candlelight vigil. And we sat outside in front of the city hall from 7 p.m. till 6 in the morning with candles. And as we sat there praying for peace, we had one pastor and this Islamic scholar. So when the pastor come and strengthen us with a word from the Bible, the following hour, the Islamic scholar would come and strengthen us. And then we'd break out in songs, either Christian songs or Muslim songs. And we spend the entire night. My vivid memory of that night was around 5.30 because the visual was supposed to end at 6 in the morning. This heavy downpour of rain came and we just sat there. But the Islamic scholar was in the middle of his exhortation because he was doing the concluding exhortation. And I just saw this man stand and this pouring rain came on him. And it was like he was standing in the sun because he did not even miss a beat of what he was saying. He continued to encourage us. Beyond the vigil, one of the things that women did when we were looking for leader in the group, I, I, I said, okay, of course, I was still looking for a way to get out of this dream thing. <laughs> so I said to them, I am the one who have read King, I've read Gandhi, I've read everything. I will write for the group. So find your leader. And the older women, both Christian and Muslim women, looked at me and said, you are the leader. And I said, no, 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 no. Can't you people see that this is a public thing and my life is not good? I don't want it in the public eye. And one of the older women turned to me and said, God uses the foolish things of this world to confront the wise. And, and, and I'm looking at these people and saying, oh my God, they've missed it. You know, they've really missed it. And then they said, let's pray about it. And they kept praying. And for the next one week, every morning we went for exhortation. They went into the Bible and picked a character that was weak and told the story of how God used this person. Finally, one day they came with an oil. 
And I'm wondering, and then they say, we want you in this circle. And if there's anyone in this group who is against her being the leader, we're giving you the opportunity to leave. So that was the first time I was not in charge. You know, so they, they were telling me what to do. And some women got up and left. And then they said, let's hold hands. So Christian Muslim held hands and they said, we're going to anoint you the leader of this group. So they took the oil, anointed my head, my hands, and the bottom of my feet. And they prayed, Christian Muslim prayers. And then afterwards, they said to me, you're good to go. <laughs> so persistently, it was a difficult task. But whilst we were also being strategic, and this is the point that I want to drive home here, because what I realized in everything that we do in this world today, people tend to want to separate the spiritual part and try to want to rationalize in their heads that, okay, this is just a coincidence. You know, this, this, everything that you did was because you were strategic. It's true, we're really very strategic in everything we did. But I think given the, the conditions and the situations that we live and work in, had we not have that spiritual part of it, we probably would not have made it. Because it was our deeply rooted sense of our faith that kept us together when everything else failed us. When we could not get money, when we couldn't get anything. I remember there were days that we would just sit and cry. And just cry and just look at each other and say, this is not working. And someone would take either a scriptural voice or a Quranic text and use it to edify the entire group. The other things that we did sometimes to, 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 to show a sense of sisterhood and collectivity and connectedness was we wash each other's feet as a symbol of regardless of your religion, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless. And, and let me just give you all an example of the composition of our group so that you, you really know and see that it was truly the hands of God, whoever you know him to be, that held that group together. So one day we're sitting on the airfield after we've prayed, and we're just keeping company. And so I would go around asking women, so why are you here? Why are you doing this? The idea was I was going to write a book, and I'm still thinking about it, and tell their stories. So one of the women said, I, I, I'm here because my son was killed. My son was killed, and he was butchered. And they, they made me to buy every single piece of his body before I could bury him. And you know who did it? And we said, no. And she turned and said, this woman's nephew. And this woman sitting there said, yes, it's true. And that is the reason why I'm here. Because I don't know how to apologize. I don't know how to say sorry, but maybe if I put myself in front of this, and by some accident if I get killed, maybe it would be good enough to make amends for all of the young people that my nephew killed in our village. Some of the women sitting there had brothers who were key warlords. And they would say to their siblings, you join that group if we decide to shoot in that group. One of the girls who came in, catered to us every morning, lived with Taylor's wife. 
So I'm just giving you a description of the people we were from across ethnicity, across political diversity, whatever way you want to describe it. But we had one thing in common, our common humanity being held together by the faith in that, our faith in that higher power. So we continue to do our work strategically. We, 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 we understood when we were doing this work that we could not separate our sense of patriotism from our personal welfare, from national politics. And this is where people miss it also in today's world. They see church and religious institution as spaces where people should not be involved. But the opportunity to change the tide is so great in these institutions. And for us coming together as a holistic group, it was important for us. We decided that we would, the act of being heroes or sheroes or whatever you want to call us was a test of our consciences. Today, like 100 years ago, like almost 18 years ago, the story is the same. We were able to bring peace to Liberia. And all of the narratives of the end of Liberia's war, they tell the story and a part of the women's involvement. All of the mediators who were there said, had these women not come together put aside their differences, use their faith, we don't think we would have been here. I'll tell you a funny story. Some of the times we used to carry on fast, and the older women would say, I don't know where they got it from. Don't ask me. <laughs> but we would lie on our backs and face the sun. I remember the first time we did that, People stop and park their cars to look. Someone, according to the story, I don't know if it's true, called President Taylor and said the women are facing the sun. And the question he asked, do you think they're cursing me? But it was far from that. It was like, this is the God of the sun, and that was the explanation they gave. And if by looking to you will give us some semblance of peace, we will look to you. And we will lie in that position for hours, praying, just facing face up to the sun. No umbrellas, no shade, nothing. Because what we did in the entire process of peace building was using the brokenness of our bodies the pains that we had gone through to confront those who had done all of the things that they did to us. When the women went to The Hague 100 years ago, it was a journey of ricks. When we protested, it was a journey of ricks. When they went to The Hague, it was a moral venture. When we protested, it was a moral venture. At The Hague, even women who did not come from countries that were involved in the war say the cries of soldiers on their deathbed asking, 
can't the women do something about this? Haunted them and drew them to the protest in The Hague. 101 years later, the question is the same. Can't the women do something? Can't the women do something in this world where we have all of this horrific violence in South Sudan, in Central Africa Republic, in Syria, in Yemen, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and places and spaces where it's too dangerous or where it's more dangerous to be a woman than a soldier? Can the women rise up and challenge governments that spend millions on wars whilst their citizens die from the lack of basic needs? Can the women do something about the thousands of girls and young women that are trafficked and forced into prostitution in very wealthy nations? Can the women do something about the rising wave of fundamentalism in this country and many other parts of the world? Can the women do something about the wave of unarmed killings of civilians by law enforcement officers? Can the women do something? Can they just do something about the degradation of our environment? Can they do something about the rising wave of hate politics that we see in America and other parts of the world? And my answer is yes. Yes, we can. Yes, we are. And yes, we will continue. Despite the dreadful stories and statistics of how difficult it is for women to function in countries where there are conflicts, on a daily basis, you hear stories of heroism, stories of women who are challenging the status quo. A few years ago, I found myself in South Sudan, in Diara Congo, and we're in the Oriental province, not Kivu, not Bukavu, that everyone knows about. We arrived in that province, a delegation of women led by myself, and we sat down with the UN to say, so how safe are we? And the answer was we are situated in an active war zone. Some people started to cry. Some people were upset that we had not been briefed properly. But I think God had designed it in a way for us to be there. In that space, there is this one woman, Julianne Lesange. Julianne has set up a free hospital for victims of rape, men and women. She has a little buffer zone where people can come after they've run away from whatever abduction they have suffered. And women are there to welcome them and take them to this clinic. Not only is she providing Medicare for them, she's also finding small amounts of money and giving it to them and say, start a life. I sat in a room with 100 women, and each of them told their story of rape. And I describe it at the end of my trip as the beauty in the middle. Because as these women told that story, they came to the middle of the story, and it was, and the women came. And I moved from this disappointment, I moved from sadness to hope. They gave me new clothes, they gave me new underwear, and they gave me hope. Today, I am standing up for another woman who will get free. This is what women are doing. They are catalysts for peace in places where rape is the order of the day.
In places like South Sudan, we're told of the story of a little boy who is the head of his home, and it's just him and his little sister. Things got rough. He said to his mother, sell my sister off in marriage so that you can send me to school. And the mother is disturbed because according to tradition, father has died. He's the head of the home. So she goes to her women's focus group meeting where they gather just to talk and strengthen and pray with each other and say, this is my dilemma. And the women say, just find a way to send your son to school. We will sell whatever we have and contribute to your daughter's education. So that one girl, because of those women, agents of change, was saved from a dreadful marriage. You go to Syria and you hear stories of women who are in the community using pray the devil back to hell as a means of mobilizing other women to do community peace building. If you go to, to, to other places like Yemen, you hear stories of girls who are challenging the status quo. Even in this country, there are women who have stood up and said, no more will we take violence in our communities. They are doing it, they can do it. The question to you and I in this room tonight, is there a place, is there a dream that you have to transform a situation? It doesn't have to be an all out war. It doesn't have to be AK-47 shooting all over the place. Sometimes that dream and that whisper in your ear is just mentor a child. And in mentoring that one child, you're saving him from prison or saving him from killing many people. Maybe the whisper in your ear is just go to a homeless shelter and serve a hot meal. My friend Abby Disney and I were sitting the other night and keeping company and she said, Lema, I cannot understand what has happened to the humanity of this world. She said, I stood at the corner in New York and watched a homeless man lie down. And one after the other, people passed by him. She said, I'm just going to stand here and see if anyone will stop and ask this man, are you okay? She said, people passed and passed and passed. And even though he looked like either he was drunk or he was high or he was knocked out on something or he was just tired, no one stopped to ask. And she walked up to him and said, sir, are you okay? He looked up and said, I'm fine, but thank you so much for asking. <laughs> How many times you've heard that voice in your ear as you walk past someone, stop and say hi. And sometimes when we talk about being catalysts for change or agents of peace or being strategic for peace, people think that it's just a huge thing that you need to do. Everyone who has made great impact on our world today started small. Men, women, boys, and girls who are great in the eyes of the world as change makers or change agents started small. The challenge to you who are already involved in it is to bring others along. Spread your crazy with other people. Don't keep your crazy to yourself. <laughs> it is important for all of us to use whatever it is that is within our power to change the tide. It is important for us to stand up when it's time to stand up. And you know what? It's a very lonely place to be. I've been an activist, and I remember 
on this journey, I take my spiritual life very seriously. I went to speak at an event in New York. And I'm sitting there like here. As I'm talking, I'm observing someone in the crowd. And this girl keeps, so I'm like, okay, is my zip open or did something happen to me? Because she, she had a very funny facial expression and my eyes kept going to her. At the end of my talk, everyone came and said they wanted pictures. This was three months after we received the Nobel Peace Prize. So January, February, March of 2012. And then she walked over to me and said, I need to see you. And I smiled and said, do you want picture? She said, no. Do you want my autograph? No, I just need to talk to you. And I'm like, OK, maybe I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, so I, I say excuse to the crowd. And I took, we went in a little corner. And she said, the Lord gave me a word for you. And I was like, oh, God. I'm used to hearing these things in Africa, not in America. <laughs> Seriously. So she said, the Lord says, I should tell you, you should use your faith as the foundation of your work. You will go far. Your social network will shrink, but he got your back. And then I said, do you want a picture? And she said, no. <laughs> Walk away, and I have never seen her. I used to have tons of friends. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine and I were talking. She said, Lema, you know what I realized? I said, no, you have no friends anymore. And I said, yes, I know. The word came four years ago. But you know the one assurance that I have? And she said, no. I said that the Lord said he's got my back. And I trust that. Sometimes it gets lonely because even with all of the spiritual things, you still need people to talk to. Sometimes it's difficult. But for me, every time I'm challenged, the way I see God got my back is he shows me something. One of the days I'm in New York and I'm really depressed and discouraged about the trends of events. In my personal life, in my work, different things. So I'm walking, going to a meeting, and I see three black boys go into a nail salon. For some reason, I stop. And I'm just looking at them. They come outside with a pair of flip-flops. Instead of going to my meeting in that direction, they're going in this direction, I'm following them. I follow these young men, and I walk behind them, and they get to a place where there is this old white man bent over and he's fighting to walk from one point to the other but his flip-flops are broken. These three black boys. And the way I like to tell the story is that this is the time of Black Lives Matter. This is the time when the conversation around racism is very high. This is the time when people think there cannot be any good thing between black and white. These three young men walk up to this old man and hand him the pair of flip-flops. My heart just went out, and I don't know them. I just ran to these young children and started hugging them. <laughs> and of course, their first instinct was, whoa. 
But I just said to them, I'm your auntie. And I want you to tell your mothers that if she's raised very good boys. Afterwards, I'm walking and going to my meeting that I'm late for. But I'm asking God, what are you teaching me? And the answer was, your work is not in vain. There are people out there who are looking and seeing not just you, but other good people who are doing work for peace. We all want to see change. We all want to see great things happen in our world. The challenge to us, including myself, is that we need to stand up to be catalysts for peace. The women in The Hague did it. The Liberian women stood on their faith, they, were pers they persevered, and they worked hard, and they made history. You and I may not make history in a global sense, but to a girl, a boy, a man, a woman, or a community, you could be that catalyst for peace or great change. Thank you. so much for all you've shared with us. Um, I'm speechless. Um, so um, what What I think I will do, do, do shall I proceed to yeah. the students? Yeah. Um, with some of the students in the Religion and the Practices of Peace Initiative um, working group have prepared some discussion questions for us and I'm gonna call on them at this time to start our conversation. Uh, Jenna. Thank you so much, Ms. Bowie, for being here. We're so inspired by your faith, and we are just grateful for your presence in this bicentennial year and for the light and love of God that you, that you bring to this space. Thank you so much. Um, as an RPP working group, we just wanted to ask some questions, so I'm going to turn the mic over to Christina. Thank you. I'm Christina. Thank you for sharing your story with us once again. Um, I'm Christina and I am a first year MDF student. Um, so my question came from within your book um, and we talked about, and you also talked about that a little bit tonight. Um, so in peace building work, there are multiple perspectives because there's people from very diverse background and um, that comes with certain integral dynamics such as um, conflict among leaders, which can endure our, our work. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so, um, so how do we push forward um, when, like, how do we push forward to create this just society when um, we have a very different perspective? And how does, um, and what role does women play, do, do women play in that? Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think she I just answered your coming question. Coming from the University of Birmingham, Alabama, 
and I was working with a group of activists there. And at that meeting, some people said, revolutionary. Some people describe themselves as activists. Some people say freedom fighter, whatever. So how do we can bring it together? How do we create a just society? To an extent, that was your question. So I say revolutionary plus activist plus freedom fighter. What is the end goal? What is the equation? What are you all looking for? The revolutionary said change. Activists said transformation. And thank God I'm at Harvard, so people, the English professors will help me. So change and transformation. So these are your, this is the equation. Towards what goal? And they said human rights. Or if for your sake, we we'll say justice. If this is the equation, change, transformation, what is the difference between change and transformation? It's not very far, right? We call them cousins. But if you call yourself a revolutionary, and I call myself an activist, and he call himself a freedom fighter, and if we are fighting for change, transformation to the end of human rights or justice, we need to find a point of convergence. And because the end of the equation is human rights, that should be our point of convergence. Let's share ideas, because you see, all of these initiatives in silos will never ever help us to attain what we need to, in our, whether it's in our communities or in the larger society. So coming together and working together for justice, what role does women play? So let me warn everyone, I'm a feminist, no if, no but. So sometimes my responses will be very biased towards women. But what I've seen in most of the communities that I've gone to, a lot of these women come without a political agenda. It is always about what we can do to safeguard our communities. So when you're in a focus group meeting in communities and everyone else is talking about who will be the leaders, these women are talking about how can we fix schools? How can we get the children back? So basically they are looking at the human security needs while a lot of their male counterparts are looking at their security needs, the need for job, the need to fulfill their egos and all of the different things that is happening there. Is this good? In hindsight, no. Because when you're in the process of fixing things and everyone else is proffering a political agenda where women get left back, is that whilst we're facing communities, we never ever have a political agenda. So when societies are fixed, and then we say, okay, so we too want a piece of the political pie, they be like, seriously? Go take care of the children. Go take care of those social issues. So now in my work, I say to women, even as you're charting a course for peace, have a small group sitting somewhere Charting a course for your political future. Yeah. Ms. Um, Bowie, thank you so much for being here. My name is Lucia Villavicencio. I am part of the Religion and Practice of Peace Working Group. And this is a question drawn from your book and for the discussion that we have had in class. 
it's relating to the international's community participation. So when and how should other countries and organizations such as the UN or NGOs come to aid those in the midst of massacre and genocide? Furthermore, if they do so, what are the best ways for them to draw on the resources, including the spiritual resources of the communities they are seeking to help? Thank you. Thank you. I think it's getting hot in here. I need to stand up. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say to you, in many places, the, the, the problems we have with outside interventions is that people come with one size fits all. So if there was a protest at Yale and they use this model, if there's a protest at Harvard, let's bring it in. Over time, how do we see global peace building? There's war, calls for peace talks, peace agreements, political settlement, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, even when communities are not saying this is what we need, disarmament and demobilization, elections, peace has been served. So it's like a five-course meal. This is the way we're going to do it. What is missing in all of these processes are contextual analysis. This context, who are the key players? How can they make it work? How strong is or how strong is religious institution? How strong are women's groups? How strong are the men in this society? How can we make the youth get involved? What can we do to change this? None of those happen. And most times, the people that they take and bring and say, these are the ones who are going to lead the transitional processes are individuals who have, are also part of the problem. So 20 years later, you go back to that same community, not much has happened. No serious wounds have been healed because people are not thinking about genuine processes of reconciliation. It was imposed on us. We were never a part of it, so we don't buy into this. So I think it's important, I would say always, for assessment. After peace talks, when you're talking about implementing peace agreements, let there be a conversation with everyone on who should be, how it should be done. In our country, millions of dollars were spent on Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the process. Nothing has been done. As a nation, we haven't even started the process of reconciliation. No, because the first thing that needs to happen before a nation goes to reconciliation is the recognition by the political power that great harm was done here. And someone needs to apologize. But within our own process, no one, because everyone feels by apologizing, I will be owning up to a crime that I did not commit. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I am the head, I'm the one post-conflict, I need to come and say sorry on behalf of and start this process of healing. And then so, this, but if the, the government, if the process is too politically driven, then people will not have confidence in the process. That's true. That's why reconciliation, healing, transitional justice, and all of the different things that bring nations back after war should be seen as a journey of a nation, not a journey that outsiders lead. Outsiders can accompany. So you're walking alongside us because you have the resources, you have some of the expertise, but in the back of your mind, let it be that we are the ultimate experts. 
So most times I say to young people doing development work or hoping to go into communities, do not go with the assumption that I've come to save these people. You can save no one. I met a group of girls within this in Massachusetts or university. And they were a few years back, they were anxious that they were going to Papua New Guinea and, and they've raised thousands of dollars and they've gone back and forth, back and forth. But Miss Bowie, we need you to help us. Why? The women are not cooperating. Really? Yes. Um, there is a problem with domestic violence and we've been there three summers now and we can't seem to find a breakthrough. So I asked them, so who told you there is a problem with domestic violence? Oh, we went there and we observed. And I'm just looking. And then we came back and we raised money. We talked about the problems and we've gone three times now and we can't seem to make a breakthrough. Did they tell you that there's a problem with domestic violence? No. Every time we raise it, they tell us there's not a problem with domestic violence. So how dumb can you be? <laughs> If it is not a problem, it is not a problem. <laughs> you need to work and talk to them and let them tell you what is their problem. Don't come with this assumption that I come from college and I know everything and this is the problem. You could be seeing domestic violence and these women could be seeing economic empowerment as their biggest problem, poverty. Because they could tell you, because I'm poor, that is the reason why I'm still in this relationship. So this relationship is nothing if I can find a means out of. So whether it is international organization or young people or old people going into spaces where they want to help, go respectfully. Because even me as a Liberian, today I go back and forth, back and forth. I can never assume that I know my country better than anyone who have lived there. So I go in carefully asking questions. Every day I read the news. Once I'm finished, do my own analysis. I call press people that I know to be friends. I call individuals. Tell me what's going on. How is this playing out? How is this playing out? Because I don't want to go with the assumption that I know what is happening there. And that should be the attitude of everyone. Even if you're going as a pastor, don't go thinking that I, I'm going to teach these people how to pray because they could just pray you out of there. <laughs> Next question. That's an assumption from a Western perspective that because they are not allowed to drive, the men are overpowering them because they are covered. Let me tell you a little secret. I have a sister <clears throat> in Kenya who covers, her daughters cover, and she's married to a very powerful government official. I love her, we met at grad school. And we sit down and talk about many things. And she's like a mentor to me. She's Muslim. I, every time I, we, after we graduated, the first opportunity I had to go to Nairobi, I took it. So I was in Uganda. I had a few days off my work. 
I'm not staying in Uganda. Uganda is not one of my favorite places in the world for many reasons. So I take a flight to Kenya. But I call her and say, I'm coming to Nairobi. I get to Nairobi, and this very powerful man standing outside of the airport. It's 12 midnight. So he drives us. She sits in the back seat of the car with me. We chat all the way to her house. She comes into the guest bedroom. We chat all the way into the morning because we are not seeing each other for almost four years. And then I keep saying to her, won't you go to your husband? She he knows that I miss you. And then I realized that every time I go, this man is always on hand to meet me. And one of the days I asked her, say, she said, I've told him. If he ever fails to meet you at the airport when he's not traveling, I will deal with him. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. <laughs> but from an external perspective, because she's covered, people think she has no power. But in most of those whom it's the women who have the power. And if they say the bus stops here, it stops there. That's why I'm saying what we need to do, and we need collaboration. Don't get me wrong. We need women in this country to stand up first for themselves before imagining they can stand up for other people. Because you see something, my dear? I have observed that in this nation, when there are conversations about reproductive health and family planning, it's mostly driven by men in the, in the popular media. And then the women are sitting in their living rooms and they are upset. If you have a situation also in these communities where tensions between law enforcers and black people are happening, it's time for the women to stand up and say, enough of this nonsense. We have sons in the police forces. There are sons of black women. We will come together as mothers. We will have conversations. We will proffer recommendations. And we will see change in our community. That's the first step. Because you know what? I believe in from local to global. If you're not doing anything about your process, how do you contribute effectively about something that is happening outside? Don't get me wrong, we need donors from this country, we need people to give money for some of the work because we do not have the resources. But that we do not have the resources does not mean that we do not have the intellectual capability to drive our activism. And similarly, I can never come out of wherever I've come from and insist that I want to do something with the American women. That will be the peak of arrogance on my part. So most times I go to communities, I suggest. If I see something, and then I say, don't you think? For example, we were at the Human Rights Institute in Birmingham. It is a beautiful historical space. But when you go through that space, you go through tons of emotions. And then the space ends with, quote unquote, a part of hope. My question to them after I, I went through the space was, is there a room for reflection? A space where people can sit down and absorb and pray? Or is there a room 
for, for conversation, especially if you have young black people coming through this room and then they leave and go back to school. You haven't succeeded in reconciling this community because on the wall they have, we have this here to look at our past and imagine a future that is beneficial for all. But if I just come out of this place and no one is engaging me, how is my future? I, I live worse than I came. So that was my suggestion. I think you all, since you're in the, the, in the process of upgrading, maybe you should find a little prayer room. And you should insist that if schools come here for tour, that they have to spend an extra 30 minutes to debrief and take it all out. I did not write a letter to say, as a Nobel laureate, I feel this is wrong. I said, this is my humble suggestion. It's up to them to take it. But it's not everything that you see. I went to Congo some years back, and I was working with the women, so I asked them, the global media has it that you are the rape capital of the world. And you know what they said? We don't know where they took that from. Of course, rape is here. So I asked them, list down your problems and prioritize them. So they listed 10. In orders of priority, rape was number three. For them, the absence of women in decision-making space, economic empowerment, then rape. He said, we are one country in East Africa that have the laws to protect us. But because we don't have a lot of women there, no one is looking at the implementation of these laws. So everyone who was in the room, including me, who's an African, I was shocked. Because those were the days that all of the statistics coming out of Congo was like 100 women were raped, 75 women were raped, 200 persons were raped, and this and that. And they say, yes, we see all of this, but we will not accept the narrative that rape is our primary problem. So we can work together. We can all work together. I believe in sharing of ideas, sharing of resources. But I also believe if we are sharing ideas and we're sharing resources across culture, you should be able to show me what you have done in your community before asking me what you can do in my community. That's my honest, and, and I apologize if it sounds harsh, but that's my honest opinion. And my darling auntie, <laughs> I always tell people what you see is what you get. I don't know how to be deceptive, so I apologize if this sounds harsh. <laughs> Okay, I'll take from there and then oh, here. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Dolly. Um, I come from Colombia, where three days ago, the referendum for, the, for peace didn't pass. The Catholic, the Catholic Church is perceived as having been one of the catalysts for the no to want the referendum, or for the referendum not to pass. So my question is, in a highly skeptical country where people believe that the Catholic Church and religion 
are not doing what they're supposed to do, what is your advice for Colombian people and for Colombian women to do now that we're in this very complicated situation? Thank you. I'm, I'm in, actually in Colombia in February and then in April next year. Um, <clears throat> all of the Nobel laureates are convening in Colombia in February. But um, over the last few days, I was part of a working group on the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, and we had some of the um, Colombia activists involved with that group. One of the things that we've done across, first is to encourage, because like Brexit, everyone was discouraged after the, the I, I woke up to the news and I was like, oh my God. I was one person who said, it's a done deal. You know, I'm always, sometimes I'm very skeptical with political processes, but with that Colombia case, I was like, it's going to happen. It's a yes. And when they, 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 they polls, the they, they initial results showed yes was ahead. And all of a sudden, no came from nowhere and just swept it off. The first thing to do is to gain courage because a lot of people are discouraged. They, they, that hope should not die. Because the death of the hope would be the death of the peace process in Colombia. That's the first thing. The second thing is intense dialogue. Um, in Liberia, we had a problem with our House of Representatives recently. And everyone was trying to find a solution to the problem. And there was this elder who said, once upon a time, back in the history, when you had the indigenous, I mean the American Liberians, descendants of the free slaves, ruling the country, there was a crisis between them and the indigenous people who had come into politics. And the every day was an impasse and the government could not function. And they called in the traditional leaders and they came in close the door and said, talk to each other. And said, Is that all you came here for? Say, we will not leave this room until we talk and talk and talk and find a solution to the problem. So they sat in the room and they talk and talk and talk and talk and night came and they went home. Next day they came back. Three days of talking at the end of the day, everyone agreed on something that was beneficiary to the government. The point that this old man was making was that in our world today, we want quick fixes. Everybody wants to fix things quickly. I will talk at you, but I don't want to engage with you. So I think people need to sit down, include the Catholic Church in the conversation. And this is the time and the opportunity for religious institutions to step up. So not just with the Catholic Church, but with all other churches. Let's have a conversation. This is not the time to be angry. The women should not give up. It's time for them to step up their game and really start pushing the world for reconciliation. Because with the no on this vote, the likelihood for, they hope for 52 years of war to just go to the wind is very strong. So people should never lose hope. And I think that is the message that a lot of us need to send back to Colombia to say, let this struggle continue. Kofi Annan put it very well a few days ago. He said, the no vote is not the end of the peace process. It's something that should um, juvenate or rejuvenate the Colombian people to work. So it's just, it's, it's just a little hurdle. And if they see it as that, 
they are able to jump over it and do something. So I, I think it's time for everyone to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and say we will work for peace regardless of the outcome of this vote. But the other thing that I wanted to point out, similarly with Brexit, my husband has a British citizenship. And I remember that day that everyone was going to vote. I said to him, won't you go to vote? He said, oh my God, that thing, these people are just jokers. It will never pass. And the next morning, <laughs> I said, well, I thank God that I still have a Liberian passport and have never betrayed my country by not voting. <laughs> And he said, thank you for rubbing it in. <laughs> but the reason why I'm saying this, because again, from Birmingham to Quinnipiac to other places, you hear many people saying, at the rate these elections are going in this country, I'm not going to vote. I hope you're prepared to settle for whatever you get. Because regardless of which way you intend to vote, just imagine 75 years ago, there are certain people in this country who could not vote. Women a minority group, or 100 years ago, today, you're able to do so because of the tears and blood. I don't think anyone should take any political process or any process of patriotism for granted. I'm not here to say to you, vote this person, vote that person, but it is your right as a citizen. I felt so good the first time I voted in my entire life was 2005. My grandmother went to the polls. I drove from my house to go and pick the old lady up to take her to vote. And I met her sitting there and said, see my tom, I was the first to go and vote. I was like, what? She said, yeah, I had to. Don't underestimate because we're in crazy times. Very crazy times. No one knows what is happening to this world. And I'm sure God himself looked at his handiwork and he said, what is going on down there? <laughs> because it's really, really crazy. But if you have a tiny power, and that was the essence of the talk tonight, to change something, make sure you maximize it to the fullest. Uh, hello, I'm also from Colombia. So we were lucky to get two questions. Uh, one of my main issues right now, and I see that is an issue for many of the people who are trying to push forward the hope message that you are proposing here, is how to still keep people accountable. How are you be able to build peace when you also have to keep people accountable for their wrongdoings? And in particular, today was a difficult day because those campaigning against the peace process said that they had told lies to the public about the reasons for voting against it. That was very hard. How not to be vengeful or when you are facing such injustice. Yeah. You know, um, most times when people, people tend to put timeline and time frame to the quest for justice. You know, like, okay, we just signed a peace process and so justice must happen. I, I always tell people in every community, timing is very important in peace work. You need to solidify that peace and ensure that, that the, 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 the quest for blood, that militaristic lifestyle has come down to the point. In, in our country today, we can begin the conversation for justice. 
because it's how many years? 13, 14 years after the war. But in Colombia, people can still begin to say, we will ask for justice. But in the meantime, let's solidify the peace. The way I see it is that even for the World War I, II, people are still being held accountable for it. So justice is not something that we want to run so that it overrides the peace process. Because if you begin to, so you have several priorities. And you say, what is our priority now? Our priority is the implementation of the peace agreement, bringing peace to the community, taking the guns from the fighters, and, and making sure that those areas that have not been accessible to people, we're able to go there and begin the process of conversation with our relatives that we haven't seen or interacted with in 50 years, 52 years. And then you begin to have that conversation. But if you start now, our experience in Liberia was that people see it as you want to pay back. And they will oppose it. And it could derail the peace process. So just as I say to women, start documenting. You know, even now in Syria, the ICC is collecting stories. The war is not over yet, but those documents will never go away. In other places, in South Sudan, they've collected, the AU have collected stories. Can they say we're going in now to prosecute these people? It will definitely derail the peace process. So justice is not, we should never compromise justice. That's my take. But we should also be careful in terms of timing. Because in our quest for justice, if we use the wrong time, we could derail the process of moving the communities back to where we need to get them. That's my take. How not to be bitter? It's a very difficult question. You know, for people to come back and say, oh yes, we mobilize a whole nation to vote no, and then we are telling you we lie. How do you turn that conversation around? It is something that only the Colombian people need to, the question you need to ask yourself is, how far is being bitter and being angry going to carry us? We've been bitter for 52 years, and it never really helped us. It's time for us to be angry for a moment, but it's time for us to move on and see, give the young people the kind of hope. Because you see, this is just a very fragile process. I remember sitting in my bedroom celebrating South Sudan as the newest republic in Africa. And then less than a year later, sitting in my same bedroom and crying over the war because people did not handle it well. That should not be the legacy of the Colombian people. Yeah. My name is Hawa Ibrahim. I'm from Nigeria, and I have worked a bit with Boko Haram, and recently in Jordan, understand a bit of the ash. So I started a project called Mothers Without Borders, Muslim Mothers Charing Youth Away from Violent Extremism. Listening to you, it touches my heart. And the question that kept coming is, Mothers, it was from our womb that we gave birth to these children. Where did we get it wrong? How can we make it right? That's deep. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think we got it wrong. I don't think we've done anything wrong. We found ourselves in, a, in societies where patriarchy is the order of the day. 
we were socialized in a way you had no control over the way you were socialized. I had no control over the way. Some of us were blessed to be born into a feminist family that made our socialization a lot easier than some of the other people. But then, even if you got it right at home, you can't always protect your children. My daughter at three came home one day and said, Mommy, um, today they were asking about what mommies do and what daddies do. And so, um, the teacher said mommies are nurses and mommies are teachers and mommies are mommies. They stay home and do stuff and daddies go to work and daddies are pilots and daddies are this and daddies and daddies drive. So I said, did you tell them mommy drive also? She said, no. So I'm looking and say, this is an outspoken child, but it is in the middle of a cultural culturally correct conversation. And she didn't want her mother to be the odd mother as the only driver in the, amongst the rest of the children. So she kept quiet. In my house, she's not socialized that way. She's not socialized for anything. I'll give you another example. Liberia went to war, and I worked with child soldiers, sat in a focus group with them, 16 years old, and asked them, did you rape anyone? No. I said, as a soldier, you never raped? No, we did not rape anyone. Wow. And then it dawned on me. Okay. Did you force anyone to have sex? Oh, that's what you're talking about? Yeah. But why are you asking rape, rape, rape? Rape is a bad thing. I, I told them to have sex. Isn't that what women were made for? Fast forward. Ghana has never gone to war. Not in modern times. Another child of mine goes to school to express her feminist self. Today is International Women's Day. And boys, you need to treat us girls well. And a little boy who lives in a quote-unquote peaceful country stands up and says, sit down. Women are only good for making babies. Put a gun in his hand. What will he do? He will rape and say, isn't that what women were made to do? So mothers have done nothing wrong. We all, maybe the world that we, we live in got it wrong. What we can do, even though we live in this world, is to try to work as hard as we can to ensure that it is not as bad as it is by socializing the ones that we have control over. I tell my two sons every day that one wedding present will not be opened by them and their wife, only the wife and I. And that is a king. You know king? If he ever, either of them ever touched their wife, she should take that cane, bring it to me, we'll unwrap it, walk back to their house, and fluck the hell out of that man. <laughs> because I did not socialize him like that. You understand what I'm saying? We have to. We, I, I, I will never blame myself. I will, blaming yourself 
is blaming every woman for what has happened in society. And it is not fair. Blaming men for violence is blaming every man that they are responsible for the state of the world. I know they have their part in it. <laughs> but you can't blame them. It's because we were the political system that the world and our societies are built on patriarchy that tells one group you are this and this other group you are that. And that even some men on this side who decide, no, I want to cross over or let there be a comfortable middle, this same side will laugh at them. The girls that I work with in my program a few months, weeks back, were saying to me, one woman in their neighborhood, they were sharing stories, have a husband who stays home, cook, takes care of the child, and, do, 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 and the entire group of 20 burst up laughing. They said, oh, wow, she didn't get married. She had a son. So I said, are you kidding me? This is one person who has crossed over and said, I will be in the middle. I will support my wife while she goes to school. I will stay home, help with the children, and work from home. And in the entire neighborhood, they would never refer to him as her husband. They say her son. Because she is seen as the one who works or leaves the house every day, and he stays at home. So where did we go wrong as mothers to have daughters thinking that way? I won't take it like we went wrong. Men did not go wrong. It's the structure that we inherited when we came on this earth. Pastor, I'll take from you, and you have to bless me, or else you are not leaving this room. <laughs> My friend, um, I am a pastor, and I do bless you, but let me tell amen, you, I, I amen, dare... Amen, amen, amen. I, I dare to speak for more people, I think, here, that honestly, I would rather be blessed by you, because I think you are... Um, you are, you are, you bring that. If, if you so. say that, I will come and fall on oh, your feet for you. I don't like the idea of that cane, so <laughs> let me ask my question. My name is Mark Farr. I am the president of a, of a conflict transformation organization in Washington, D.C. called the Sustained Dialogue Institute. It was born at Camp David, an organ a place where people who were at war came together. And the core value we have is that relationships are, which is what happened there, the only way to sustain a long-term peace Countries can, can sign peace treaties, but only people can make peace, and through their relationships. And my question, which is, there's much more to tell you about that, but I haven't got time here. My question, therefore, for you is, do you think in Liberia, if I believe that it's relationships that will make peace in the long run work, do you think those relationships are being built? And my final act would be to do this. Bless you. Amen. I think it is the relationship that has kept us for 12 years. A few years back, we had a situation where just one fight between a Christian and a Muslim turned into a big community crisis. People lost their lives. It was the imams and the pastors that have worked together for years, women like ourselves in our coalition, that went to radio stations and went back into these communities and started speaking since back. The one question I think that was the turning point, an imam asked a crowd of angry youth, raise your hand if you do not have a single Christian in your family. 
No one could. He said, I, I cannot afford a Christian Muslim war in this country. I have 10 children, six are practicing Christians. So if you all decide to go and kill Christians, and because I'm an imam, I have to follow you, it means I have to decide to kill six of my own children and grandchildren and sons and daughters-in-laws. I could not tell anyone that I would stand up as a Christian and say, let's go after Muslims. Because growing up, my mother had five daughters. My aunt had four sons. And their father is a practicing Muslim. So they too are practicing Muslims. So do I want to get involved in something like that when the boys who represented brothers in my childhood practice a faith? So it is relation. And once people see this, in Kenya, last year there was the Karasi attacks at the university. Islamic extremists went into the schools and killed. When you go into the communities, the, the Muslim people will tell you it is the tolerance of the Christians that has kept us together as a community. Then Christmas time, another bus was attacked. And the melish, melish, militant that was on the bus said, Muslims, one side, Christians, one side. And this one Muslim man stood up and said, there are no Christians here, there are no Muslims here. We are brothers and sisters. He got shot. But they did not succeed because the group in the bus refused to be separated. And they did not want to kill people indiscriminately. It is relationships that held us together. I tell people sometimes I travel and go back home, and when I see those women, in two seconds we can party. <laughs> I was in central Liberia recently doing camp with young children, and one of the excursions for the camp was to take them to the women. So this bus load of 30 young children and, and 15 volunteers, and myself, we get there, and the women are standing outside with drums and sassas. And they have on their uniform the same cloth. As soon as I get off the bus, they throw me one of the uniforms. You're one of us now. I tie it, and the drum starts to beat, and I'm into it. <laughs> and the kids are just standing and looking. And afterwards, we go, they talk, and then they bring this big meal and we eat, and then I start to complain that my father died, and I have, my father has been dead for two years, but I said to them, no one brought me rice, no one brought me chicken, no one brought me this. Traditionally, they were supposed to come and bring these things to cook for me. And they said, Thursday, when you're passing, stop here. Thursday, my husband came to pick me up. The things they had for me could not fit in our car. In two days, they had mobilized rooster, this thing, coconut, whatever. We packed that car, till we, and I was determined I was not leaving one piece of pepper there for them to take back home. <laughs> but it is the relationship that keeps community together. And I think it's important for this nation and these people our American brothers and sisters, for you to begin to see 
especially at this school, with such important tasks that after November 8, it will be relationships that will keep your community together. It will be interfaith interactions that will keep your communities together. It will be inter-ethnic, inter-political interaction that will keep your community together. And this is the message that these are very, very difficult times in Dean Hampton. I think my suggestion to you and your team is to already begin to think how do we begin conversation post-November 8? Because it will be very critical to the peace and sanity of this very small but neat community and the communities beyond. It has been a true pleasure just engaging with you all. I want to say a big thank you for having me. Um, there's a reception afterwards. I sincerely apologize that I cannot stay for that because I have a 5 a.m. flight to catch to New York and a 5 p.m. flight to catch to Monrovia. So whilst everyone will be enjoying their weekend, I will be flying. I don't get to Liberia till 6 p.m. on Saturday. So I want to say thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Pastor, for your blessing. Thank you all. I know somehow you're blessing me somehow. Thank you for all of the good wishes, Dean Hampton. And, um, oh, Jesus. Yeah. And I would not call you another name because that's my deficiency. I call people names that I think they deserve. Thank you, Anne, for everything. And thank you all. It's been a wonderful time. Liz and her team, thank you all. Thank you so much. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we have a small gift for you, and I've been ordered that you must open it and not drop it. Oh, no. So I will hold the bag, and you can dip in. So it says, Religion and the Practice of Peace, Harvard Divinity School, Gratitude, Lehman Bowie, October 26th. I'm truly honored. Thank you so much, Thank Dean. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank in my ear and we can't refuse Liz. If you would give us a prayer before you leave. Oh, Liz has asked for a prayer. Oh my God, these people want me to bring down the spirit in this room. <laughs> well, I, I would definitely say it and I, I would just like to, to leave all of us with God's peace and his grace and his mercies. Um, in my life, I've always chosen scripture verses that I hold on to in different times. And um, one of the verses that I took a, many years ago when we started activism, this pastor will give you voice and verses and say, this is your promise. I don't know if anyone has encountered that. 
but it's First King 5.4. And it says, And now my Lord God has given me rest on every side. There is no danger of an attack, and I have no enemies. And I feel that for the Americans, this should be your prayer, that God has given you rest on every side. And regardless of which side the political tide falls, there is no danger of an attack, and you have no enemies in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.